You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. In a recent paper, our guest today reminds us that ADHD holds the distinction of being the most extensively studied pediatric psychiatric disorder and one of the most controversial. In the 1990s, office visits for stimulant pharmacotherapy increased five-fold. What has been the response from the public and from institutions? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, and with me today is Dr. Rick Mays. Dr. Mays is an Associate Professor of Public Policy at the University of Richmond's Department of Political Science and a Faculty Research Fellow at the Petrus Center on Healthcare Markets and Consumer Welfare at UC Berkeley. His newest book is called Medicating Children, ADHD and Pediatric Health. Welcome to ReachMD, Rick. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, Rick, why all the controversy about ADHD? Well, I think ADHD is much more controversial than, for example, say, ODD, oppositional defiant disorder, because I think of three basic reasons. The first one is that the diagnosis has a really strong educational context. In other words, it's hard to even imagine ADHD existing without schools and teachers. The vast majority of childhood diagnoses originate with teacher observations, And interestingly enough, there's a huge surge every year in October and November in ADHD diagnoses and stimulant prescriptions. And the research that others have done and we have done informally is that it coincides very well with the first round of parent-teacher conferences. Most children who have ADHD and are diagnosed with it don't show enough symptoms in a clinician's office to warrant the diagnosis. It's the kind of disorder that is so strongly tied to schools in a way that, say, depression isn't that it often arouses suspicion by people who see other motives and efforts by people to maybe make their lives easier, in this case, teachers. Another reason is that the primary and most effective treatment for the disorder, stimulants, is very different from the drug treatment for, say, depression or bipolar disorder. I'll give you another interesting example. At my college, University of Richmond, and other colleges and universities, there is a not insignificant black market for stimulants every semester, and it peaks usually during midterms and final exams. These are times when students are really struggling to maintain their attention span and energy level. There's no equivalent black market for antipsychotics or antidepressants. So this is another unique aspect of the diagnosis and the treatment. And the last reason I think that makes it so controversial is that when the average person reads the list of symptoms that are used as the behavioral criteria for ADHD, things like often does not seem to listen when spoken to directly, often has trouble organizing activities, is often easily distracted, is often forgetful, fidgets with hands or feet or squirms in seat. Those symptoms don't seem all that intense, bizarre, or extreme. They seem like a lot of the things all of us wrestle with, more or less from day to day when we're in boring lectures or church sermons or business meetings. So when people look at it, they say, this doesn't seem like a really unique diagnosis, and this doesn't seem like, when I think of mental disorders, this is not what I think of. But for those who work in the field and deal with uh, people who do have the disorder, they can tell you very persuasively that there is about 3 to 5% of the population for whom their fidgetiness and their lack of attentiveness and their hyperactivity are so beyond the average person that it really makes their life difficult. And for that reason, it is a real disorder, but because all of us have some sort of passing similarity or familiarity with the symptoms, a lot of us don't realize that for many people, it's a, it's a severe stumbling block. 
Tell us what has happened in North Carolina to develop community protocols to treat ADHD. Yeah, I think this might be of particular interest to your audience. Uh, I think a lot of the people who are listening to you will sympathize with what these physicians were facing and would maybe like to do the same thing that they did. About 10 years ago, a group of about 42 primary care physicians, most of whom were pediatricians, who were practicing in two rural North Carolina counties, decided that they could find a better way to treat their patient population of children with behavior disorders. They were really dissatisfied with the fact that there was nothing standardized, that children sometimes came to their office with a whole dossier of information from the parents and teachers that was helpful, but sometimes it was almost too much information and it wasn't in the form that they could use it. On the other hand, they'd get the next child into their office and there was no documentation. And they were just being asked to find some way to help this child and they had to go out and collect all the information. A lot of the parents in the community felt like they were the very last ones in the process to have a say in this, that a nurse or a teacher contacted a doctor, and then eventually they got the parent involved. And so a lot of parents felt like they weren't involved from the very beginning. And a lot of school officials, particularly nurses, were constantly in the awkward position of trying to answer teacher questions about medications when they had no communication with the doctors. And so they couldn't say anything. And it just seemed like if you could get everybody in the room together and get them all talking about this, find some standardized way, a protocol, for information every year at about the same time in the same format to come from the school to the parents and to the clinicians in formats that both of them can understand and use in their practices. And then you could get everybody more or less on the same page. And that's what these 42 primary care physicians did. They got everybody in the room who had a say in this, and they said, let's come up with a protocol Let's come up with a standardized screening method in time. And this way, we'll get the information the way we need it, and we can make individual diagnoses and treatment recommendations based on the best medical practice. So some kids will get prescription medications. Some kids will get family therapy. And if, if it's more along the non-medication route, there were other people in the community, social workers, who were also in, incorporated into these discussions. And so when the treatment regimen was more directed at using non-medications, there were other people in the community who could do a better job of that and actually free up the physician's time. And they could actually focus more on the things that they do well. And actually, and this is, I'm sure, again, something your audience can appreciate, physicians have to, to be mindful of what things they get paid for and what things they don't get paid for, especially primary care physicians. And so developing these protocols allow the physicians to focus more on the things they excelled in and the things for which their valuable time was reimbursed sufficiently. So who actually did the work? In the beginning, it was the doctors who came together, and they were the catalysts for this whole formulation of the community protocol. That's for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is they're the only ones who can prescribe medications, which for a lot of the children is the ultimate route that they go. But they also have a significant amount of influence in their community. They're people who are very greatly looked up to and they're pillars of their community. So when they made a few phone calls and they led the way, everyone else very quickly followed because they all realized that they were going to benefit as well. And it was valuable for all the people involved to say, wow, let me tell you from our perspective, from the teacher's perspective, how this looks. And then the physicians could say, well, great. Now we have a better understanding of what things you face. Here's what happens when it comes to our office, and here's where it works, and here's where it doesn't work. And so at the end of this, even though it did involve some more time up front to get everybody on the same page, the benefits quickly accrued to every single part of the community. Now, I'm not saying, and the researchers who did this research are not saying that everything went from, you know, haphazard and sloppy to nirvana and utopia. It's mm -hmm. not the case. But everyone involved 
were significantly more satisfied with the process after they established the protocols because, again, if you've ever been through something that's not standardized or you're doing it ad hoc all the time, you think, always think to yourself, couldn't we do a better job of this? Couldn't we, isn't there a better way that is more efficient and, more, and produces better outcomes? And in this instance, they were able to achieve that. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Rick Mays. We are discussing community protocols for treating ADHD. Rick, it sounds like this would take more time from all the professionals involved, so who pays for it? Interestingly, in this particular instance, it was Medicaid because all of these primary care physicians were in a Medicaid program that provided Medicaid services. So it it was also to Medicaid's financial benefit that the more efficient the process, um, the less amount of money was wasted on things that were not particularly effective or helpful. It's interesting to note that when you have a payer that is a large dominant player in a certain community, they often can be the catalyst along with the clinicians because they have a financial stake at, at, in heart. And again, in, in terms of being interesting to your audience, they all know this now in research documents that in most metropolitan and even rural areas, but particularly in suburban and metropolitan areas, in most areas of this country, they're dominated by one, two, and at most three health insurers. So you know, the ingredients for at least the financial incentive to pursue community protocols already exists in most places in the country. It just requires a few clinicians, a few teachers, a few parents, and a few health insurance representatives to kind of say, hey, could we all do this to all of our benefits? Is there a place where the rest of us can see what they did? I know the researchers at Wake Forest, I know their names, and they're the ones who have been kind of doing these long-running surveys of these clinicians. They are available. You can get their reports on PubMed. As far as you know, has there been resistance among some of the clinicians who didn't want to practice cookbook medicine? It seems like that's always the big argument, you know, against protocols. From the research that has been done on these 42 primary care physicians, there has been no bickering or resentment over cookbook medicine because, at least in this instance, I can't speak to other instances of protocols, this one was initially driven by the physicians. And this is a key thing, whether it's pay for performance or managed care or protocols, and it's so important for your audience. And I, I tell this to all of the physician groups I speak to. Again, whether it's pay for performance or managed care protocols, if the physicians take the leading step, they can dictate the terms and the details and the processes and the whole momentum of all of these movements. If they take the lead, they can craft these in a way that plays to not just their benefit, but ideally they're the ones who know best what's in the best interest of patients. And if the clinicians can muster up enough, not that they have a ton of free time, but if they can take the initiative They can actually control large parts of what ultimately produces the protocol, and in the end, that is their benefit. Well, it's amazing. It's really remarkable that a community of physicians was able to get together and agree on something and really change the standard of practice in the community. Um, I wrote my article, and I said in there, this could be replicable in larger communities. To be honest, I, I actually had a lot of time to reflect on that claim I made. I don't know, and I'm sure some of the physicians in your audience can say, wait, you know, that sounds great. I'm in, a, I'm in Manhattan, or, you know, I'm in suburban Washington, D.C., or I don't know in this level of population density if we could get everybody together that had to, be, had to come together to make this happen. And I don't want to say here glibly, oh, yeah, absolutely, you can. My guess is it probably is a little bit more difficult the larger the population area you're working in. 
again, the ace in the hole I think that you could use as a physician who wanted to replicate this is you could go to your local large health insurer. I'm from Richmond, Anthem WellPoint, basically is 80% of the central Virginia market. They control everything. And you could go to them and say, and they're, they're very bright people who can see things that benefit them very clearly and say, look, protocols help all of us, but they, they also help you as well. Because the, the health insurers are always looking for ways to be more efficient and to be more clear for them and for their patients. So this is one of those instances in which health insurers could actually be agents of health to the local community clinicians. This is one of the few instances where you can actually use their own self-interest to the doctor's better use. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you for having me. We've been speaking with Dr. Rick Mays about the establishment of community protocols for treating ADHD. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For a complete program guide and downloadable podcast, visit our website at www.reachmd.com. For comments and questions, call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM-157. Thank you for listening. 